Today's Bible reading comes from Romans 8, verses 18 through to 30. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. Father, thank you that you have spoken to us. Um, Lord, I ask that your living and active word would be living and active this morning as we read it. Uh, That we would have ears to hear what it says, Lord. That your spirit would be working in us um, to teach us your promises and to hold on to your son. Amen. Questions about suffering are often the reason that people walk away from their Christian faith. Let me read to you a bit from Steve Jobs' biography, uh, written by Walter Isaacson. Even though, they weren't a fer- even though they weren't a fervent family, Jobs' parents wanted him to have a religious upbringing, so they took him to the Lutheran church most Sundays. That came to an end when he was 13. In July 1968, Life magazine published a shocking cover showing a, showing a pair of starving children in Biafra. I think there's a picture of the cover. Jobs took this to Sunday school and he confronted the church's pastor. He said, if I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I do it? The pastor answered, yes, God knows everything. Jobs then pulled out the cover of Life. He pulled out the Life magazine and asked, well, does God know about this and what is going to happen to those children? Steve, I know you don't understand, the pastor said, but yes, God knows about that. Jobs announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with worshipping such a God, and he never went back to church again. 
Questions about suffering are often the reason that people walk away from their Christian faith. And it's important that we take the topic of suffering very seriously. When we're talking with our kids, when we're teaching Sunday school, when we're talking to our friends and family, this is a very, very important topic. And fortunately, it's a topic that the Bible talks about so much. I heard it said to me once that actually the Bible is a great big book about the issue of human suffering in life. And today, as we move through Romans 8, we see a section that deals with this idea, deals with suffering. And it's not all that there is to say on the topic, and I'm not going to answer all of your questions that you might have about suffering. In fact, I probably couldn't because there are still questions that I have personally. But there is one question that this part of the Bible gives us an answer to. What does God do for us in our suffering? This part of the Bible is dealing with that question. What does God do for us in our suffering? And I think it says a couple of things. I think, I think firstly it says he gives us a hope for the future and he gives us help in the present. What does God do for us in our suffering? He gives us hope for the future and help in the present. So let's have a look at the hope for the future. Now, you might not have picked up on this in the reading, but Romans 8 is a chapter of the Bible that is all about a person. The person is the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 is this kind of long, logical argument about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And we get to these verses uh, in the middle, and we, we hear about the Holy Spirit again and again. Now, in those verses that Travis took us through last week, we saw that the Holy Spirit did two amazing things in the life of a Christian. Have a look at verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So we heard last week that the spirit actually raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the first thing that we, the first amazing thing that we've heard about the spirit. And then if you have a look at verse 15, we find out something else that is amazing about the spirit of God. The spirit that you have received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So we, are, we have seen the spirit raise Christ from the dead and he has brought about our adoption to sonship. Now in these verses that we look at this week, Paul actually refers back to those two things as being the first fruits of the spirit. Have a look at verse 23. Verse 23, he says, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Those things that he told us about the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the redemption of Christ's body and the, the adoption into Christ's family, to God's family, they've already happened in the past. They, but Paul says that those things were just the first fruits. And we, we wait eagerly for the full harvest to come. Now, first fruits, he uses that expression there, first fruits, in verse 23. Uh, these are the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits were the fruits that were the first to bloom at the beginning of the season. Uh, so what would happen is that the, the, the tree would bloom uh, and the fruit pickers would go out and they would pick the first fruit off the tree and they would take it to the farm owner as and show him the first fruit. And then the farm owner would throw a party in celebration because the first fruits was an indication of the harvest that was to come later. It was a, it was a small example of what was going to come later. It's the, the first fruits gave you something tangible that let you know that there was something more to come. And Paul says that we already have the first fruits of the Spirit. We already have the first fruits of our future. We know that what our future is because we... 
We've already got the first fruit on the tree. We have seen, we have been adopted into Christ's family. And we've seen the redemption of Jesus' body. We already have the first fruits. And so we know what our future is already. Uh, last week, I was, you know, we had our first 9.30 service, uh, which was great. Um, I enjoyed it. And the thing that I enjoyed most about it is that the service finished and it wasn't even lunchtime yet. Um, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. I've got so much time on my Sunday. So I went and had lunch with some friends and family afterwards. And then it was, it was a really beautiful day. It was also the first day of spring last Sunday. Uh, so after we had lunch, we decided that we'd go for a walk to the beach. And we walked down to the beach and it was a beautiful day. And it was the beginning of spring. So we decided to go for a swim as well. Um, which, actually, you might laugh, but it was actually really refreshing. A little bit cold, admittedly. Uh, but it was a really nice experience. And I wanted to go for a swim, given that it was the first day of spring, because I thought to myself, here's a little glimpse of what the next few months will hold, you know? We're heading into the warmer part of the year, and I want to experience what that is like right now. You might say that I wanted to experience the first fruits of the warmer months to come. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that we already have the first fruits of what our, spirit, what our future will hold. The resurrection of Jesus' body, our adoption into sonship, these are the first fruits of what our future will be. I think this is really important for us to get our heads around because Christian hope for life after death is not just wishful thinking. Our hope for life after death isn't just kind of like, fingers crossed, hopefully something happens good after we die. That is not what the Bible says. It's not just wishful thinking about the future. For Christians, the hope is not grounded in wishful thinking about the future. It's actually grounded in historical events from the past. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And because we have seen his resurrected body, or because the apostles have seen it and we have heard of it, Jesus has risen from the dead. Therefore, we have seen the first fruits of what is to come. We know what our future is. We have seen the first fruits of it. We know what to expect because we have seen it before. And because of this, Paul says that with confidence, have a look at verse 18. This is an amazing statement. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul says that because we've already seen what glory is like in the resurrected Jesus Christ... We know that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with that. We've seen the first fruits. We know that what is to come is going to be so much. We've seen the first fruits. We know what is to come. And so we should take hope. He says, can you even imagine what the harvest will look like? It's not worth comparing with your present sufferings. It's so much better. If you have a look at verse 22, he actually compares this with, uh, with childbirth. In verse 22, he talks about the pains of childbirth. Because I think childbirth is a really good example of what Paul's talking about here. Childbirth is excruciating pain followed by wonderful reward. Excruciating pain, apparently, I don't know from experience, but excruciating pain followed by wonderful reward. And Paul's saying that that's kind of what we're experiencing now. Our present suffering Terrible, but not even worth comparing with the future glory. 
The happiness and the reward of a new child, it actually colors the memory of the previous pain. This is, this is something that scientifically is the case, that mums say that they, they don't even remember how painful it was. They know it was painful. They know it was terrible. But it's like the, the, the blessing of a child in their hands kind of erases some of that memory somewhat. There's actually a name for this phenomenon. It's called the halo effect. I was reading about it this week. Like I said, don't know from experience, but this is just what I read. Paul says that's what our present suffering is like. They're sort of like labor pains. Present pain, but followed by future reward. Now, you might hear Paul saying that, and for those of us who are experiencing suffering in, in just some of the most awful ways, and, and you only have to be human to experience suffering. That's just a part of this human experience. It might sound as if Paul is being insensitive. For those of us who are less familiar with Paul, we, it might sound as if he's being insensitive to the enormity of some of the pain of the human experience, and maybe your own personal pain. But let's just keep in mind that Paul is not somebody who is um, unfamiliar with suffering. When Paul became a Christian on the Damascus Road, God said about him, I will show him what he must suffer for my name. And as we, so his whole life is marked by suffering. And as we read through the New Testament, we find out about this painful life of Paul. Uh, flogged, beaten, sent to prison, shipwrecked, deserted, betrayed by friends. At one stage, he's even stoned with rocks. He, the end of his life is him being beheaded in Rome. Paul's not somebody who's he's not familiar with suffering. He knows it quite well. He's sensitive to the topic of suffering because it's something that he is familiar with. But I think that that's why he is actually so passionate about the fact that it is incomparable with the future glory. Paul says it's, it's not even worth comparing with the hope that we have, the future glory of ourselves. He isn't writing this from his armchair of comfort. He's writing this in the trenches alongside those who are suffering. This is a great hope for, the, for what is ahead for us our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, which of, of which we have already seen the first fruits. Now, you might ask the question, well, what does this mean for the day-to-day living of a Christian? Which I think is a very important question. Often Christians accused of, of thinking too much about, a fu- about the future, uh, you know, pie in the sky when you die sort of thing, and not enough about life in the present, in the moment. Um, but I think that the thing is about this hope is that the way that you think about the future drastically changes the way you live in the present. That's a principle that's always true. Every morning I wake up and I go on my phone and I check the weather forecast. Because what the weather is that day, what the forecast for the weather will be, determines how I'm going to dress. What the future holds determines how we live in the present. And it's true here as well. What the future holds determines the way that we live in the present. And Paul actually tells us, in accordance with our future There are certain ways that we should live. He says in verse 23, we wait eagerly. And then interesting, in verse 25, he actually says, this future, we wait for it patiently. So we have this idea of waiting. And then on one hand, we have waiting eagerly. And on the other hand, we have waiting patiently. Which I think is interesting, isn't it? Because those two ideas, they're not, comp- well, they don't seem complementary at first. They almost seem like they're in tension with each other. And we, w- we wait eagerly for the future, but we also wait patiently for the future. Living between the first fruits and the full harvest, between the already and the not yet, Christians are meant to wait. 
And we wait eagerly and we wait patiently. I think the tendency is that we'll go more to one side than to the other. I think that this is the way it typically plays out. Christians, Christians will, will either overemphasize patience or they'll overemphasize eagerness for the future. And I'll spell out what that looks like. I think when we overemphasize, when we tip the scales to patience, sometimes it means that we lack enthusiasm. When we, when we tip the scales to patience, it means that maybe we're a little bit apathetic toward our faith. There's nothing wrong with being patient, but there is something wrong with patience that becomes complacency. We don't put much weight in God's promises for the future, and we, we live as if there is no life after death. That's what it might look like if you tip the scales towards patience too much. Or on the other hand, if you, if you tip the scales towards eagerness too much, you might grow impatient with waiting. So these, the people who tip the scales too much towards eagerness are determined to experience all the promises of the future without waiting. They want them in the present. There's too much eagerness when that's not what God has promised for the Christian. These people, they might, they might expect that God will give them some, too much, they, they might expect that God will give them too much of what he has promised in the future glory right now in this moment. Maybe more healing or more prosperity, that kind of thing. So I think there's an interesting thing to think about. Which, which way do you tend to go? Do you, do you, uh, the way that you're waiting for your future to come, are you waiting too much, with too much patience maybe to the point of complacency? Or are you waiting with too much eagerness to the point where you're maybe a little bit impatient and you're trying to force God's hand? I think that's an interesting one. Maybe you could talk about that with some people at deck time. Which way do you tend to go? But God has asked us to wait patiently and eagerly. He has given us the first fruits of what is to come. We know what the future holds and he asks us to wait letting our future hope shape our present life. So what does God do for us in our suffering? Well, first, he gives us hope for the future. The other thing that God does for us is that he gives us help in the present. Have a look at verse 26. This is astonishing, I think, anyway. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So far through this passage, that groaning has already been mentioned twice. First, Paul says that the whole earth groans as it waits for its redemption. And then he says that we ourselves also groan as we long for our, the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And now, interestingly, Paul says the Spirit himself groans as well. So this is the kind of climax of this idea of groaning, is that we groan, but also the Spirit groans with us. He's groaning along with our groaning. Which, which probably shouldn't surprise you too much, because the Holy Spirit, for Christians, He lives inside us. For Christians, the Holy Spirit is the resident of the Christian heart. And so He knows our groans intimately, and He groans along with those groans. He prays on our behalf. Then have a look at verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
So the Spirit prays for us with wordless groans, and his prayers for God's people are in accordance with the will of God. Now, imagine do this for a second. Imagine that there was some kind of like late-night infomercial on television, um, or maybe probably a Christian TV channel. But imagine that it said um, that you could subscribe to this thing, and they would offer you someone to pray for you 24 hours a day in your moments of suffering. Sounds pretty good. But wait, there's more. This person is acutely aware of the way that you feel at all moments of the day. This person knows all of your pains, he knows all of your joys, all of your strains, all of your stresses, and he knows them as well as you know them yourself. But wait, there's more. Not only does he know the way that you feel at all moments of the day, he is also completely aware of God's will for your life, God's intentions with you. So if you were to take a Venn diagram and you were to go the way that you feel and the way that your, your suffering is playing itself out in your life and then you were to overlap it with uh, God's intentions and God's will for your life, this person's prayers sit right in the middle. No one is able to pray for you more perfectly than this person. Sounds pretty good, doesn't, doesn't it? It almost sounds like it's too good to be true. I hear that and I go, sign me up for that. I'd like to have some of that. Give me a subscription. Well, let me tell you, look no further Because that is exactly what this passage is saying the Holy Spirit does for us. But it's actually better than that. Because you can't buy the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's freely given. For the Christian, the Holy Spirit is our help in the present because he knows your suffering more intimately than anyone else and he knows God's intentions for you more comprehensively than anyone else and he is groaning on your behalf. He is interceding on your behalf in the moments of suffering. That is astonishing. The Spirit prays for you in your weakness. I think as Christians, we always find it comforting when we hear that somebody's praying for us because we, we believe that prayers are a powerful and effective thing. And so to hear that there's a spirit inside of us who is praying perfect prayers on our behalf in our moments of suffering is one of the most comforting things that you could ever hear. So what help does God give us in our suffering? Well, he gives us hope for the future. We know that we will, we have seen the first fruits of our redemption in Jesus Christ. He gives us help in the present. The Holy Spirit prays perfect prayers on our behalf. Have a look at verse 28. Romans 8.28 is one of those verses that is often people's favorite verses in the scriptures. It is, an, it is an amazing verse. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is a, it's an amazing promise. There is something good that God is bringing about in all of our suffering. Something good is being brought about in all of our suffering. The comfort is that no matter what suffering we face, God will not waste it. He's not going to waste your suffering. It will be worked out for good. And I think this is so valuable for us because there is nothing... The hardest thing about suffering is when you think that there's no point to it. You know, we're able to hop on a treadmill because we know that the result will be that we'll get more fit. 
And we're able to go to the dentist because we know that the result will be cleaner teeth. But the amazing thing here is that God says that there is no such thing as fruitless suffering. You can endure your suffering knowing that it is not pointless. It's not purposeless. God will use your suffering for your good. Now, you might not see it straight away. You might not see it within the week of your suffering or even within the month or the year of your suffering. Actually, you may never see the fruit of it in your life. But when you get to glory, you will see the fruit of your suffering. You will know the good that God has worked through your suffering. Tim Keller, uh, talking about this verse, he says that this, what this verse means is that what God has for you is the same thing that you would have for yourself if you could see the things that God sees. What God has for you is the same thing you would have for yourself if you could see the things that God sees. It truly is an amazing promise. And we might ask, what is the good that God is going to work through our suffering? And I think that, that, that we can't know the answer to that question comprehensively. But I think verse 29 does tell us that part of that good is that we'll be conformed to the image of his son. Have a look at verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And we might leave aside the idea of foreknowledge and predestination for the moment. Uh, but but the, the fact of this verse is it's saying some of the good that God is going to work out in you is that you will be conformed to his son. Which if, if you are a Christian, you are so captivated by the beauty and the compassion and the love of Jesus. You're so captivated by the life and ministry of Jesus that that is something that you would hope for more than anything else. To be conformed to the image of his son is an amazing thing that God will work out through your suffering. So what does God do for us in our suffering? Well, firstly, he gives us hope for the future. He gives us help in the present. And he promises us that our suffering will not be wasted. I started by saying that there are many questions about suffering and they should be taken seriously. I think this is, this is an amazing answer to so many of the questions about suffering. It's not comprehensive. I know there's more to be said. But I think we can take great comfort that God is working for good in our suffering. Let's pray. Father, we sing hallelujah to you because you deserve our praise. You have not left us to ourselves, to our own desires to our own sinfulness Lord you have given us your spirit who gives us hope for the future he gives us help in the present and Lord you have promised that our moments of suffering will not be wasted and we are thankful for you to you for that and we pray these things through our redemption Jesus Christ amen